The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at the 13th verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that come from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount with my favourite part of the whole of Matthew's Gospel, the Beatitudes. This week Jesus' sermon continues as we come across some very familiar imagery, salt and light, and a familiar big church word, righteousness. I love salt, maybe a little too much. Um, for my opinion, for what it's worth, salt and vinegar is the least of all chips. Chicken is by far the much um, preferred elite flavour. Um, but I don't think... Microwave popcorn is salty enough, so I put extra salt on my microwave popcorn. That's how much I like salt. But we understand what salt is all about, don't we? It's our most familiar condiment. And so it's easy to jump into our familiar understanding of what salt means when we hear it coming from Jesus. A little bit of salt is all we need. Too much salt is bad for you. I'm sure all the salt I eat is bad for me. Too much salt can ruin a meal. The world already thinks that Christianity is a bit too much. And so that understanding of salt fits right in. We don't ever want to be too much, do we? Just a little bit here and a little bit there is all we need. Just to bring out the flavour or to bring out the best in a person or a situation. But let's pay a little bit of attention to what salt was all about in Jesus' time. Salt is a very common image throughout the Old Testament, and it was a common image in the ancient Near East, um, in their cultural practices. Salt was often used as currency, and Roman soldiers were often paid 
in salt. Have you heard the expression, they're worth their salt? That's where it comes from. Salt was a critical commodity in a world that had no refrigeration. It wasn't just a flavour enhancer. It was a preserver of food. Without food, there was no life. Without salt, there was often meant that there was no food and hence no life. Salt also had medicinal um, properties. It was used as a purifier or a cleanser. Salt was used for ritualistic purposes and sort of reflected in the practices of the ancient Near East in practices of life and purity and was often added to things like sacrifices. Salt also symbolised hospitality. There's an Arabic expression that says there is salt between us, which symbolises the relationship that people had together. Newborns were rubbed with salt after their birth as a symbol of cleansing and covenant. There's a term covenant of salt that you find in uh, the book of Numbers that is used to describe the covenant between God and the people of Israel. To say to us that salt can lose its saltiness might seem a little bit absurd. Salt is salt, how can it not be salt? But in, in Israel, salt could, use, could lose its saltiness because most of the salt in Israel came from the Dead Sea region and was generally contaminated with other minerals. And it was possible for the salt component to dissolve away, leaving just the unsalty minerals. But around the Dead Sea, this type of salt was so plentiful and that's why it was so widespread and used. Preserving meat with salt wasn't about a pinch of salt here or there. To preserve meat, you saturate the meat with salt. Saturation is a little bit of a different metaphor to just a pinch, isn't it? Maybe the imagery of light might be a little less in your face. Today we take light for granted. Electricity is fairly easy to access. Although on yesterday's morning news, I heard a warning about the possibility of power outages because of the overuse of electricity in southeast Queensland. The government representative said that we should just scrape through. And it made me think, when was the last time that I experienced a power outage that wasn't connected to either a storm or planned work on the power lines or the infrastructure? Because I remember growing up, the power outages and what we call brownouts seem to be much more commonplace. I um, went and asked my 14-year-old son, Caleb, if he understood what the expression brownout meant. And you should have seen the look on his face. Brownout, oh, I'm not sure if he wanted to know what it meant. And he was somewhat relieved when I explained what it did mean. 
although um, with the rising price of electricity, it may seem like it may soon become a luxury to switch on a light, we've generally become accustomed to that idea that any day, any hour, 24-7, we can just flick a switch and let there be light. It's as simple as that. In biblical times, however, light was only a given during the day. The lamps that Jesus refers to in this passage were invaluable for providing light when the sun went down. Their light would not have been anywhere near as bright as the LED globes that we're getting used to today, but they enabled people to continue their work into the night. I'm sure there's no ancient Near East expression for mood lighting because the light in the ancient Near East was purely functional. The image of the city on the hill that's used in this passage as well is actually an extension of the image of light. I'm not sure if you've ever been driving out in a rural area and you're coming upon a town and all of a sudden you see the lights start to, to meet you. And that's the metaphor, a city on a hill, that a traveller travelling at night, all of a sudden on the hill, the lights of the hill were the beacon. It couldn't be missed. It showed that people were at work, people were there, and there was, I guess, the pro promise of the salt, the hospitality when, when they arrived. Light was the very first thing that we see God create in Genesis. Before even sun, moon and stars, which we now know uh, give off the light, God declares, let there be light. We don't actually hear about the sun, moon and stars until day four. But for Jewish people, light symbolised God's presence in their lives, but more, more so in the whole world. The Old Testament constantly associates God with light. Light is what God wears. Light lives in God. God's brightness is like light. God's light is referred to often in the Old Testament as triumphing over darkness. Serving God is walking in the light. It's a symbol of goodness and blessing. And when we get to the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the light. And so in this first piece of teaching on this mountain, Jesus names two of the most important elements that were around at that time. Two elements that everyone depended upon. Interestingly, when Jesus says, you are the light, or you are the salt, all the way through this whole passage, the word you is in the second person plural in Greek. So our American friends might say something like, y'all are the light of the world. But here in Australia, what we would say is, yous are the salt of the earth. While we see a lot in our current world and our culture that celebrates the power, the agency, and the rights of the individual. 
What we see in the Sermon on, on the Mount, and particularly in this passage, is Jesus showing us another way. While Jesus doesn't diminish the importance of a personal relationship with God, what he's clearly emphasizing is that that personal relationship is something that we express and live out in community, in connectedness with one another, with each other. It's not a matter of looking around the room and finding the saltiest amongst us. It's not about looking around the room and finding the brightest shining light. It's about realising that together we are salt and together we are light. By naming us as salt and light, Jesus says that we are important. Jesus depends on us and we depend on each other which means that my righteousness is linked to your righteousness. And that is linked to the righteousness of the worldwide church. Righteousness is one of those church jargon words that doesn't seem to play so well these days. When we use the word righteousness, often it's interpreted as the church wanting to be society's moral police officers. But maybe our world's got righteousness wrong because we've got it wrong. Jesus says here about righteousness, something pretty stark, that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we'll never enter the kingdom of God. So I think it's probably incumbent upon us to understand what this righteousness means. Righteousness, or the word righteous, appears 579 times in the Bible. 126 of those are in the New Testament, and Matthew is the second largest user of the word behind Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you're reading your Bible regularly, it's a pretty hard concept to overlook. But what does it mean when Jesus says that our righteousness should be exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees? It's sounding like a pretty high bar. Or it's sounding like he might be having a sly dig at those Pharisees who he does say in Matthew's Gospels, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites. But that doesn't happen until chapter 23. We're at chapter 5. This is the beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry. Calling them hypocrites doesn't happen until much later on. And so I suspect that a dig at the scribes and Pharisees isn't his main agenda. What his main agenda is has a deep link to righteousness. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus' main agenda is to fulfill. Jesus isn't replacing the Old Testament righteousness. But in Jesus, we see a righteousness that goes deeper. It's made fuller 
It's a righteousness that pays attention to what has been overlooked. The poor, the sad, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Righteousness is those being blessed. Religious ritual, when it's left unaccompanied by social action, becomes self-serving. It's empty. And we see that later in Matthew's Gospel as Jesus criticises the religious elite. And what he doesn't see in them later on in Matthew's Gospel, he's encouraging those who gather to do something that we call these days embodiment. Jesus wants to see righteousness that is lived out, not just talked about, not just going through the motions, not just performing the rituals and the expectations of others. What Jesus wants to see is the passion and the motivations of our actions. What is the heart behind it? And this shouldn't be anything new to the Jewish audience of Matthew's Gospel. Last week, Marianne shared with us that Matthew's Gospel was written primarily in the first instance to a a Jewish cultural audience. And Jesus was speaking to a Jewish cultural audience as well. So it's no surprise that God works this way. It's right there in the Old Testament. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Righteousness is best explained in our culture, in our world, as the heart behind what we do. It's the why behind what we do. Light might be visible, but it's the power that's behind the light that makes the light work. That's the important part of the light. Where does our heart come from? From where is our power drawn? The answer to that should be the deep love of God that we find through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus shows his disciples that they have a distinctive capacity to bring goodness into the world. The disciples and the early church had a profound capacity to alter the course of human history. The danger for us modern-day disciples of Jesus is that we can forget that we too have the same capacity and the same responsibility to reorientate the status quo by valuing those who are dispossessed, caring for those who suffer loss, seeking to do justice, showing mercy, having integrity, being peacemakers, and courageously standing for what we believe. This is our intended state of being as the collective of God's 
people. The kingdom of God is the collective of all of us. And one word sums all of that up. Righteousness. On Thursday, we had new lights put in our veranda. Since we moved in about nine years ago, the light on our veranda has sort of been really dull and dim and sort of had this sort of brownish, yellowish colour to it. And it makes it really hard to cook a barbecue once the sun goes down. It's hard to tell if your meat is properly cooked. When the electrician took out the old light fitting, guess what he found? A dull, yellowish light globe. Is it any wonder that our light was dull and yellowish? Now we have two bright LEDs working together. Our veranda is saturated in light. And there's no excuse for ever cooking a well-done steak ever again. If you like your steak well done, I'll hear your confession later after the service. Our attention with intention this week is to ask ourselves these questions. Why do we do what we do? Where is our power coming from? What are we motivated by? Where is the heart and the passion that drives our action? And is it found in Jesus? And if it is found in Jesus, can people actually see our heart and our passion for Jesus? And who are we accompanying, partnering with? Who are we complementing so that we are saturating the world with salt and with light? A pinch of salt and a pleasantly smelling tea light might be fine for one meal or that special moment. But the kingdom of God is calling for a saturation of salt and light and a heart for righteousness. And for that, we need each other. And for that, we need Jesus. Let us pray. Loving God, you saturate us with your love, your grace, and your forgiveness. Yet at times we feel ill-equipped or timid and just find it hard to express and take the opportunities to shine your light and to be the salt of the earth. As we work together as church family, as we get to know each other better, as we share our stories, as we hear works of your grace and power, might you turn up our brightness. What you sprinkle more salt on us so that we can be your salt and light in the world. Help us not to be satisfied 
just with a little bit here and there. Help us to seek after even more of your love. Help us to show even more of your love to others so that others might know that even more is possible. We ask this in your name. Amen.